This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. At the heart of digital pathology is the transformation of images into data. And in so doing, we've unlocked the exciting field of computational pathology. Today, we're talking with Dr. Marcus Herman, who is Assistant Professor of Pathology at Harvard Medical School and Director of Computational Pathology at Mass General Hospital. We're going to be talking about the field of computational pathology. What exactly is it? How long has it been around? Histopathology through the light microscope has, of course, been the standard process, which has been with us for over 100 years. But what are its limitations? What are things that machines or computers are able to do better than humans? What are the potential applications of machine learning and artificial intelligence? And what areas or histologic features have been neglected, such as stroma, inflammatory cell, cell interaction, simply because of the inability of human observers to appreciate differences, quantify, and compute? This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Dr. Marcus Herman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's very exciting. We're talking about digital pathology, and I think this is really one of the first episodes where we're going to be jumping into computational pathology, which I think is part right, and parcel right down with my LA. <laughs> yeah, part and parcel with what the promise of digital pathology is, or one of the promises is. So this this will be very enlightening for our listeners. So just tell us a little bit about yourself first. So what's your experience in pathology and then digital pathology? How did you get started and, and you know where has it taken you so far? Yeah, so as you said, my name is Marcus Herman. I am a physician investigator at the Department of Pathology at the Mass General Hospital in Boston and an assistant professor of pathology here at the Harvard Medical School. I kind of self-identify as an interdisciplinary physician scientist at what I would call the intersection of medicine, biology, and computer science. So I focus primarily in my work on digital microscopy imaging, computer vision, medical informatics, and uh, clinical data science. By training, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor, so I studied medicine originally at Ulm University in Germany, but also at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, and on Sinai School of Medicine in the U.S. in New York. And I do hold the German and Swiss medical licenses and the ECF, ECFMG certificate in the U.S. However, I kind of like diverged from what I would call the traditional path. And so instead of going into residency after medical school, I did a PhD in systems biology at the University of Zurich and the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. So during that time, I spent kind of a lot of time working with microscopy imaging and analyzing microscopy imaging data. I was involved in the development of a highly multiplex immunofluorescent imaging technology, which kind of like allows us to look at more than two or three markers on, for an individual cell or a particular tissue section. And I spent a lot of time programming and developing computational methods and tools for reproducible and scalable micro, microscopy image analysis. After graduation, I kind of, this was an, an interesting time because this was around 2017 where kind of like deep learning and these new technologies in, in, in computer vision just picked up. So 
after graduating in Zurich, I moved back to the US to join what was at the time a newly founded center called the Center for Clinical Data Science. That is a joint institute between the two Harvard hospitals, or two of the Harvard hospitals, the Mass General Hospital and the Brigham and Women Hospital. And there, I kind of like focused also again on imaging, but now it was more in the, in the area of radiology. So this was kind of like um, computer vision for, I don't know, the detection of stroke in, in, in head CT images, for example. But kind of like being exposed to the way radiology does things in medical imaging also exposed me to things like DICOM. And I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later. And so I also spent quite a bit of time developing software libraries that would allow us on the pathology side to work with a similar format and similar standards that what um, radiology, I think, has profited from over, over the years. About a year ago, I then um, finally now joined the faculty at MGH, where I'm directing the division of computational pathology. So I'm leading a team here of software engineers and data scientists primarily, with whom I'm developing algorithms and software systems for computational management and analysis of laboratory information to kind of really support and enable clinical decision making. So we're in a, in a situation that's what I would almost call like an, an R&D division. So we engage in research and, and the develop of, development of new technologies, but we really aim to integrate them into clinical workflows and make them available for clinical decision making. We are developing algorithms ourselves, but we are also focusing increasingly on evaluating algorithms that have potentially been developed by others and integrate them into clinical solutions so that the results can be consumed by, by physicians. So you said algorithm. So that is, I think, of one of the big buzzwords. That's correct. <laughs> in the in the in the zeitgeist uh, of our times, and I think we're in very interesting times now. So I think this idea. So so now, you know, it sounds like there's an evolving field or a field that's with us right now called computational pathology, and you were kind of describing the steps you've taken along the way. And I think there was this idea of systems biology, which kind of took hold maybe in the early 2000s. And so let's talk a little bit about what people meant by that. But now it seems like, you know, it seems like, you know, the idea of systems biology was with us, but maybe we didn't have all the tools. And, and now we're in, even in the last couple of years, we're hearing about such advances in machine learning and artificial intelligence and increased computational power. You know, so are, are, is the technology finally catching up with the with the idea of systems biology? And and so so let's say so. What do we mean by systems biology? First of all, second of all, you know, how is the technology catching up with that idea? And then third, you know, what what do we mean by computational pathology? So I think systems biology is actually from a medical perspective is is very similar to how we kind of like study systems as physicians. So in biology, traditionally, the way you would study a biological system is that you kind of like try to understand the individual components or building blocks, like genes or proteins. And then you kind of like try to understand the function of each of these proteins or genes. And based on that understanding, you then try to assemble kind of like a more complex systems and figure out how they interact with each other. And often that is done by, let's say, perturbing one particular gene, knocking it out with like, I don't know, today that would be CRISPR or previously it was like RNAi. And then we could study the effect of that perturbation and kind of like observe what that would do to the organism, for example, or to an individual cell. The problem that we realize with this approach is that it, it often works really helping us understand detailed mechanisms but then there's still kind of like this gap between one protein and one gene 
in a complex system like a cell or a whole organism or a disease like a tumor that really, you know, where, where a lot of cells interact with each other and with their environment and so forth. So the approach that systems biology has taken instead, the contrast is to the traditional approach, which is more bottom up. So from the individual components to the larger system, systems biology tries to do the opposite. So you start basically by observing the system as it is because you accept that it's complex. And then from these observations or so pattern that you're able to kind of like extract from these observations, we're trying to infer how the system actually works. So instead of starting with the mechanism and then trying to build from the components up to the system, we start with the system and then trying to model that using statistical or computational models, which we know have some bias, right? They're not perfect. But we hope that by building these models directly from an actual system that we observed, we'll get a good understanding of some of the mechanisms that happen underneath. And the, the full ideal systems biology is that you would start kind of like top down, observe the, the full complexity of the system, try to derive some of the fundamental principles through statistical and computational analysis, and then try to test some of these observations in kind of like the, the similar way of how traditional biological experiments were done with a targeted uh, mutation or a targeted perturbation of a system and observing whether the hypothesis that you generated from data actually holds. Yeah, that's incredibly fascinating, this, you know, a top-down versus a bottoms-up approach. I think, you know, as scientists or people that really want to understand something, I think understanding the mechanism is very satisfying, right? We know that this gene has this function, and then when it has this mutation, this protein will be altered, and it will come out with this result, which I think is very satisfying to understand, but that can only take us so far, right? Where right. true progress happens, you know, not necessarily by deductive logic, but by proof by induction. Yeah. Is that, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think it's very satisfying. And it also has the, the biggest advantage that since we are perturbing ourselves, we know that we did it. So we can reason from a causal perspective. So there is some causality Whereas when we just start by observing and we are applying statistical models, all we do is basically looking at relationships. So there may be correlation between certain phenomena, but that doesn't mean they are causal. So this is maybe some of the downsides. But and, and what I mentioned before, the way we as physicians try to understand diseases is similar. We kind of like accept that diseases are highly complex and that we can't understand all the different mechanisms. So we typically start by observing them classifying them into different categories, for example, in pathology, depending on how they look like. Right? One disease looks different than the other. We may reason that they look different. They may actually behave different and have a different function. Therefore, they may have different outcomes and may respond to different therapies and so forth. So I think pathology is kind of like very close to systems biology, at least at a conceptual level, where we start top down. I think the major difference is kind of like in the technology. Systems biology is very quantitative and computational driven whereas anatomical pathology at least for for the last couple of decades or centuries has been primarily qualitative and it seems as if maybe things have been i mean things have been getting more complicated in some sense right where we're, we're you know so we have dna rna protein and then we're discovering other forms of rna messenger rna microinterfering rna you know post translational modifications of proteins and and so forth so it's and it seems like this world of diagnostics you know where you you know if you have this condition we're going to look for mutations in the dna over here we're going to quantify your messenger rna so it seems like 
diagnostics is becoming or has become increasingly fragmented. So are we going to ultimately drive to more of a grand unifying solution, you know, where we can incorporate a systems approach and find out, you know, really the best ways to measure things, right? Are we going to kind of turn the corner in terms of, you know, coming up with a more unified approach to diagnostics? Yeah, I think this is kind of like what, what computational pathology is, is at least intended to do. So there was a landmark paper back in 2014 that was my current chairman, David Lewis, was the first author, where they introduced the idea of computational pathology. And this exactly as you mentioned it. The, the primary goal of computational pathology was to say we have various sources of information within pathology already. So we have you know, clinical pathology, anatomical pathology, we have microbiology, we have all these different sources of information coming from different devices. But we often kind of like look at them from only one individual perspective. And so potentially by integrating all of that information and taking more a holistic approach, we may be able to classify diseases better, provide better or more accurate prognosis and, and, and predictions for response to therapy. What are the applications of computational pathology going to look like in histopathology? Or let's take a step back, because um, I think that's a, a very large application, maybe the largest application at this point of digital pathology is looking at H&E images and then various molecular studies overlaid on that. So, so I guess maybe first let's take a, a step back and talk about the tradition, the grand old tradition of histopathology, that is the pathologist looking in the microscope, examine it with his eyeballs or her eyeballs and looking at the H&E stained preparations. And it's been with us for at least 100 years or more. So so let's talk about maybe what we've been able to do well with that. And then what are the, what are the limitations with that? Let me maybe even take one step further back and look at the other subdisciplines of pathology a little yeah. bit more. So we have kind of like on the, on the other side. So when we talk about anatomical pathology, we also have like clinical pathology or laboratory medicine. And we have molecular pathology, which has um, gained a lot of momentum over the last couple of years. And where they really differ from anatomical pathology is that there we already had technologies for a couple of years now or decades where we can extract quantitative information from kind of like the source data. So in, in molecular pathology, for, for example, we have DNA or, or RNA that we can then kind of sequence and then we get these reads. Like in the early 2000s, as part of the, the whole genome sequencing initiatives, we basically gained the technology to assess genomes at large scale and quantitative. And what we get out in the end is certain you know, quantitative information about whether a gene is expressed or whether a gene may have mutation and so forth. And the same in clinical pathology. It's highly automated by now where we have, I mean, if you consider a complete blood count, for example, right, you basically just put the blood into some machine and the machine spits out numbers of like how many red blood cells there are, how many white blood cells there are, and so forth. So anatomical pathology differs dramatically from those, primarily based on the technology. So we are not working with liquids, but like solid tissues, that's one part, but we are really looking at these tissue sections um, using imaging technology. And I think that is the major difference between imaging and some of the other areas is that the data is inherently unstructured. So we have these large images that we can't kind of like feed directly into, let's say, a statistical model, or at least in the past, we, we didn't have the technology to do that. So the other technologies allowed us already to have certain features that we had, uh, measurements that we could use to then train a statistical model and derive certain quantitative predictions. 
in pathology, due to the nature of the data, we had to kind of like stick to qualitative evaluations, if you want so. So basically three text descriptions of what a pathologist saw. Yeah, I think that that's incredibly fascinating, whereas in anatomic pathology, we've kind of looked at it as our special domain, right? It's some, you know, it's in a sense, some kind of, you know, and for, for many reasons, some kind of secret knowledge, I guess, for one reason is it's on the slide. And generally, in most cases, only one pathologist is going to be looking at that slide, right? And then he or she makes the diagnosis and might write in a description and say, well, I found you know, a cancer with high-grade nuclei and a high mitotic rate that was had an infiltrative pattern of growth. And everyone else would kind of just read that and take that person's word for it. But, you know, the chances of actually someone reviewing that case again, in many cases, would would be small, right? So in that sense, it was kind of a secret. And then in another sense, you know, it just got put in a drawer and filed away and never, never to be seen again, Right before you know, before as we'll talk about things being archived digitally, right, so they can be mined for data or looked at by future generations, and so on. So in in one sense it was a secret, and then in another sense you're talking about you know clinical pathology and liquid assays, you know where it's very easy to conceptualize those as data, right? You get a CBC or other lab test, you get a very numerical, highly quantitative result. You know, and so I think a big transition is going to be how do those images, you know, that secret information, that secret knowledge of what was on the glass slide, how does that become data, right? And then once it does become data, what, what, how can we best use that data? Yeah, that is, that is an interesting question. And I think that is where this new technology that's called deep learning really helps us. And often there's this term called representation learning which basically means that a lot of what we now do with these convolutional neural networks or other deep learning technology is that it allows us to start with unstructured data like an image, but then basically pass it through a model that can automatically extract these features or relevant features from the images. And then, or wait, oh, before we get that far, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about, let's go back a hundred years to how the human beings were... Yeah were extracting these features. I think that's a very good segue. So yeah. how were the people doing it? And what, what have human beings done so far? And where have they fall, And what have they done well? And where have they fallen short? What are the limitations of human beings to do this stuff? Yeah, I think we can, we can actually consider human beings and pathologists very similar. I sometimes kind of like ask jokingly whether a pathologist would be a feature extractor or a classifier. And it, is, it depends on the context. So what pathologists typically do is they look at an image... Right, or multiple images under a microscope. So they take stained tissue sections, look at them under the microscope. And then often they would, sometimes they would extract certain features, like certain, they would consider certain characteristics of morphology that are well known to be associated with a particular disease. And then based on these features, they would render a diagnosis, which would ultimately be the classification. So they may look at a couple of slides and then say, okay, because I saw this and I saw that feature, now I call it this type of cancer. And we have a whole classification system for that and so forth. But sometimes also the pathologist basically just extracts certain features and puts them directly into the report and exposes them to clinicians saying, well, it's kind of tricky in this case, right? But I saw, I don't know, nuclear atypia and I saw certain other features that are kind of like associated with the particular diagnosis of cancer, but I'm not really sure and I may not call this cancer right now. So but the pathologist as a human was basically the, the, the device in that case, if we, if we want to talk really extreme, that consumed the raw data and form of images and basically created 
at least semi-structured data in form of a pathology report. Often that was still not kind of like an, an Excel spreadsheet that you would get from, I don't know, a CBC counter in, in the clinical lab, but you would then get a report that basically compresses all of that information that is contained in, in let's say, 10 whole slide images or 10 physical glass slides into a couple of lines of text that then contain kind of like the relevant features and maybe also the, the classification or the diagnosis that was derived from these features or from the raw data directly. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. Okay, so so two key distinctions. You said a feature extractor and a classifier hypothetically is what humans might be considered as yes okay and so <laughs> are they good are they good at either one of these or both well i mean the quantification is something that we humans really struggle with so what our visual systems is extremely well equipped to do is recognize spatial patterns um, and at that we are really good and so a lot of also the, the morphological diagnosis a lot of them actually depend on patterns right patterns that we see, if you consider, for example, recent grading, there's like certain patterns of glands and how they look like. And based on that, we can then arrive kind of like at a diagnosis. The problem is when when we are asked to quantify something, for example, to say the percentage of tumor cells in a particular section and so forth, we often struggle and we get highly biased and almost maybe distracted by spatial patterns. So we are we as humans in general are not very good at quantifying images. And now how does, how does computational pathology come in? Or I should say, are there other things that we're not talking about now? So computational power is one thing, but what about the ability to detect something, whether it's there or not? Is that, kind of, is that a different capability or is that kind of in line with computational pathology? That's, that's perfectly in line with this. So in order to detect something, it's the same procedure, right? You would normally need to detect certain features that are indicative of that, I don't know, concept that one may be interested in. Let's say a tumor. In order to detect a tumor, you need to know what a tumor looks like. And so the way this is now currently, in the, in the past, we would try to do this in a way in computer vision where we would manually create certain filters that would allow us to detect certain features. Let's say changes in intensity over certain pixels. And we, we got to a certain point with this, but not very far. And where we really had now a breakthrough over the last couple of years was with this new tools co- called convolutional neural networks that allow us to learn these features directly from the raw data given a certain objective. Let's say all we want to do is detect tumor We know what a tumor looks like. We can label it, for example, providing some kind of supervision to the algorithm. And the algorithm will figure out what information in the image is actually relevant in order to detect cancer. And we'll learn that whole feature engineering or feature extraction kind of like automatically on the fly. And that is what has revolutionized this field now so that I would say almost any task that we can do as humans from a vision perspective we can probably automate with enough data or a smart enough algorithm. 
And, and that has really opened new opportunities, I think, for computer vision and for, for pathology. Yeah, that is exciting. So let's talk about how, how far along it just is this revolution. One of our guests, I think in episode three of this podcast, Dr. Ajit Singh, who has experience in both digital pathology as well as radiology, he kind of conceptualized it in terms of what we're actually going to be able to, to quantify or measure or extract data from. He kind of analogous to uh, Donald Rumsfeld from the early 2000s, if people remember him, into known knowns, unknown knowns, and unknown unknowns. That is, we can apply this computational power to things we already know about, the known knowns, such as you know the size and shape of a nucleus, the number of mitoses, and things like that. And then the known unknowns, so we know that tumors are associated with stroma. We clearly see stromal changes. We clearly see the inflammatory response to tumors and so on. But I think up until now, we haven't really had the bandwidth, the wherewithal, or just the ability to, to discern various features of stroma that make it that might make it informative in terms of prediction and prognosis for cancer or other diseases, right? So that's kind of a a known unknown, right? We know it's there. We just don't know what to do with it. And then unknown unknowns, so things we would we don't even know about at this point, but perhaps machine learning or image analysis would help us to extract the features as well as quantitate or quantify. Yeah, where, where machine learning and particular deep learning can definitely help now is that we may not need to start with a particular hypothesis about what features, let's say, the stroma or particular tumor cells may be associated with a particular outcome. But we could instead say we know that two types of patient populations are clearly distinct because they respond different to a certain drug or they have a very different prognosis. So the, the underlying mechanism must apparently be somehow different because otherwise they wouldn't behave that differently or respond that differently. And we could then use something like deep learning to figure out what these differences actually are, or at least for now, kind of like train an algorithm that would allow us to predict whether a patient would belong in one category or the other. Now, the power that these models have a lot of power because they can learn all of these features. Sometimes these are millions of features that we extract from an image. The difficulty at the moment is kind of like delving into that and then interpreting what that means. So once we have a really powerful model that can help us make a certain decision, let's say, um, classify a particular image into one or two of two categories, we could in principle also take a look under the hood and now try to figure out why that decision has been made. That is just something that is extremely challenging because of the complexity of these models. So there is kind of like a balance almost between the complexity of a model and how well it can predict certain things and how well it can generalize and the way the ability to interpret the results or the intermediate features that we get. I see. So where do you think we're going to get the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak? I think in, in science and medicine, it's always nice to have a bridge between the past and the future, right? So basically, the incrementalist approach, building on what's already been done, right? So we know that certain features in, say, grading tumors are informative. And then if we apply machine learning on top of that, can we make it even more informative? Are we going to see a lot of advances there or is it going to be more delving into the unknown you know things that we were unable to quantify before or things that we didn't even know were there before i mean the, the first part is definitely going to be more straightforward 
And I think also from a risk perspective has the lower risk profile. I think the more we kind of like diverge from the current standard of care and standard practice, the more difficult it will get. And we'll probably need a lot of studies to kind of like prove that that actually works. And I think there is the problem also, when we talked about this at the beginning, that the bottom-up approach allows us to really reason about causality. If we take this top-down approach, in particular with a model that has millions of parameters and, and can be very complex, now kind of like getting beyond the correlation and arguing that what we've now observed is actually truly causal for a particular disease, that's going to be difficult. And unfortunately, at the moment, and this is a very young technology, but we have still a very limited theoretical understanding of these models. Like, for example, we, we don't really have a way to provide certain statistical bounds or saying how well that model is actually going to generalize. It's even, we are still kind of like puzzled by the fact that these models, although they are so complex and have so many parameters, generalize extremely well to unseen examples. So I think there, a, a lot of work needs to be done over the next couple of years, both on the very fundamental computer science part, but also on the clinical part to make sure that whatever we do with these models that appear powerful when we tested them on, on a small subset of patients, that this then actually holds for a larger population or that the whatever relationship that we learned wasn't some artifact in some data set. Yeah, I think that's that's an incredibly fascinating point, like this idea of causality or certainty. It's almost asymptotic. We never quite get there. You know, no matter how good these models are, it's ultimately going to be a statistical calculation or estimate. That is, if we see these features and we put them into this model, this is likely what it is, but it's it's still a statistical calculation. It might be with 99.95% certainty, but that's what it is. But it's never really a sure thing. So where do you think, and then kind of building on that, what modalities are going to be best suited for this approach? Are we going to have a second renaissance in morphology, just looking at good old-fashioned H&Es? Or are we going to be able to extract information from molecular techniques what about multiplexing you know so we have developed so part and so kind of on a parallel track so we have we're blessed with more computational power artificial intelligence and so forth but and then we're also devising better methods you know to multiplex molecular markers dna rna or what have you with greater fidelity or more the ability to look at more markers in one study. So where, where do you think we're going to see the greatest advances in that area? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a good question. And what we're currently doing is, is primarily based on H&E or IHC. We, we need to be extremely careful with quantification in these settings because the, the technology itself, like H&E staining, but also IHC staining, the whole camera chips and light microscopes and so forth are not really quantitative or they don't really necessarily have a linear relationship between the signal that is coming in and the images that we are getting out. So real quantification may sometimes be tricky on these technologies, but the patterns, I think, are not necessarily affected by that. So textual patterns and all of that can still be extremely powerful. So I think we're going to see a lot of things where like deep convolutional neural networks will be able to extract certain information from images that humans may just not have been able to see or not, may not have been able to kind of like compute on because these patterns are distributed over thousands of millions of slides. And, and so this is definitely something I think that 
that will add value. Now, the other areas like multiplex immunofluorescent imaging is an, is an area that I've uh, been personally very active in. And I think there the difficulty is even that these are not really modalities that humans are used to, which I think has a couple of advantages. Like they were also not necessarily designed or biased towards human vision. But it also means that humans will have a harder time interpreting the results. If you have a multiplex immunofluorescent data set with 40 different markers, it will be hard for a pathologist to kind of like look at all 40 markers at the same time and see extremely meaningful patterns in there. So I think that is something where we need computational technology and where we will probably be able to find certain patterns that are just not accessible to human vision or to human, human recognition. I see. Yeah, I think that that is going to be a departure. I think one thing is streamlining workflows or enabling humans to do what they do better or quicker or more efficiently versus having machine learning do things that human beings never could have done before, I think is going to be a, a, a large point of departure. Yeah. And so since we're, since there's still, I think it's comforting that there still is going to be a large focus on H&E morphology and you know, I think, which is comforting to many of us uh, pathologists because that's our that's our bread and butter. Let's talk about standardization and interoperability. How how important is that to allow this field to move forward? Yeah. So what we've talked about now was were a lot of the algorithms that kind of like enable that uh, that that these new groundbreaking uh, discoveries or, or methodologies that we that we have now. One of the major aspects that I think is often overlooked in all of that is that these technologies are heavily data-driven. So the machine learning algorithm allows us to kind of learn from data, but it needs to be fed a lot of data. So in order to train anything, but also later to use an algorithm and apply this what we call at inference time in, in like a workflow, we need to kind of like collect the right data, feed it to the algorithm, let the algorithm do its prediction get the results back from the algorithm and integrate that in a meaningful way. And so one aspect I think that is extremely challenging in that respect in clinical context is all of the metadata that is associated with an image. So the computer vision algorithm only looks at the pixels kind of like and makes a certain decision. But often we, for example, only want to send a particular type of image to an algorithm. Let's say an H&E slide of, I don't know, lung. So we first need to know whether that is a lung, an, an image, or the specimen was derived from the lung, and whether it was stained with H&E and maybe fixed with you know, formalin and embedded in paraffin and so forth. So far, all of that has been possible because pathologists just look at the image and say, oh yeah, I can see that's FFPE and that's H&E. When we then later want to feed this to an algorithm that kind of like assumes that that is an FFPE, H&E stained from the lung, we need to know all of that information. And that is often not necessarily readily available. And if it's available, it comes in a variety of different flavors and formats that are difficult for computers to parse and interpret correctly. So I think interoperability and, and data standardization are, are huge and immensely important for any artificial intelligence to come. Okay, and where, where are we now in that journey? Are Have we achieved some level of interoperability where you know, pathologists across the country and across the world can begin sharing their images and contributing to studies so we can extract meaningful data and move the field forward? Or do we still have a long way to go in that area? Yeah, medical informatics is a bit of a sad place at the moment, I would, I would say. It's, we can definitely move forward, and we have seen that now a lot on the research side. But what must not be forgotten is that often, you know, before we kind of like 
put together such a data set or curate such a data set, we spend hours kind of like going into our archives, figuring out what slide that is, whether it has the right diagnosis, we need to look up the pathology reports. So putting together these, these what I would call highly curated data sets for research purposes or validation purposes is one thing. And we can do this at the moment with sufficient effort. So somebody just needs to sit down and sift through whatever data, read manually through pathology reports and extract the meaningful bits and pieces out. So we know we ultimately have a data set that is only contained of lung specimens that are all HNE stained, FFPE fixed and so forth. But when it now comes to like the inference part, when we really want to run them in a clinical workflow with relatively little human supervision, then this information needs to be available at real time in the hospital workflow. So we need to know whether this from which patient that image comes, what specimen that belongs to, how that was processed in the lab, and all of these details. And that's unfortunately still a part where we live kind of like in the Wild West, I would say, where every laboratory and every hospital has their own laboratory information system that will store different types of information at different granularity, different levels of detail. And ultimately, it's extremely hard for just an algorithm to come in and kind of like run on a particular set of images. So I think we've made progress. There have been standardization efforts, particularly from kind of like the NIH and certain data repositories where, where we can now start to exchange data in a research setting. But when it really comes to clinical application and integration, there's still a lot of work ahead. So we've made some progress, but still a long way to go before we can tame the Wild West, <laughs> yeah. so, so to speak. Okay, well, Dr. Marcus Herman, thank you so much for being with us and discussing uh, this burgeoning field of computational pathology. So before we wrap up, just tell us what excites you and where do you see the field going in the next 10 years or so? Yeah, so what, what I'm really excited about is the quantitative aspect and the ability to combine spatial information, so morphology, extracting quantitative information about morphology and combining that with molecular information. So we, over the last couple of years, we have seen incredible new technologies in kind of like imaging itself. You mentioned multiplexed immunofluorescent imaging. There's also in vivo microscopy where we now can study tissues in vivo. And at the same time, we have gained new tools for analyzing these images and for storing these images and so forth. So I personally think that anatomic pathology will kind of like travel a similar path that clinical pathology already did in the sense that it will become more and more automated and where like image-based diagnostics becomes also more test-driven, where we have individual tests, basically questions that we need to answer with information derived from imaging. And so I think this is an, a really interesting and exciting development that will probably take years to decades to really kind of like fully transform pathology but that is kind of like what I'm personally excited about. This interaction then between machines and humans and how we leverage kind of like information or features extracted by machines. So maybe even a decision that a machine made and integrate this kind of like in the bigger clinical picture and use this to make them meaningful decisions uh, for patients. Absolutely. I think that's, that's really at the core of what we're doing, making meaningful decisions for patients. Well, our guest has been Dr. Marcus Herman from MGH and the Harvard System. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.